Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Dr. West. Thank you for your service. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Wes. Hi, this is Wes Center, and you're listening to the NeuroNoodle Network podcast. Welcome to NeuroNoodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology podcast, featuring our neuropsychologists, Dr. Laura Janssens, Dr. Skip Wren, and neurofeedback legend Jay Gunkelman. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. This is an all-star cast that are more than happy to share their knowledge with you. My name is Pete, and today we have on the show Dr. Wes Center, founder of Brain and Behavior Associates. But before we get to Dr. Wes, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporters, Outrageous Baking, Tor Talk, Interested Brain Hacker, and Sadia M. Outrageous Baking is a dedicated gluten-free bakery that has been around for 15 years. And Tor Talk wants more people to discover TTS, text-to-speech because listening to text can increase efficiency and reduce stress. And Pamela, if you're listening, I'm trying to order one of your gluten-free apple pies. Uh, I want to surprise my wife. Uh, Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the word out. If they can't hear us, we can't help them. Okay, Dr. Center, thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to be here. Thank you for the invite. You got the invite. Did you come through uh, by way of Jake Uncleman? Do you happen to know him at all? Just curious. You know, we we bumped into each other a couple of times over the last 15, 20 years. <laughs> Jay, how do you know Wes? Uh, well, we, we attend uh, the same annual meeting quite often. And um, actually, he introduced me to his son um, and uh, at a meeting who's uh, a, a, a good student in the field. But we're all students in this field. Amen. You can't master the EEG. You can only be a student. Wes, you're in uh, North Texas, right? T- tell us about your practice. I am. So we've been here for, for about uh, 15 years, and we've been serving ADHD, autism, PTSD, particularly combat-related PTSD, for which I have a special heart um, for those guys, being a combat veteran myself. And, um, yeah, we have been employing multiple modes of uh, – of neurofeedback, biofeedback. Uh, we also do a little bit of functional medicine here as well. Neurotransmitter, stress hormone testing, functional genetics, and uh, use quite a bit of supplementation, diet, sleep, and exercise interventions along with that. Uh, we found that if you, if you don't address some of the body, the body issues, the sleep issues, uh, doing neurofeedback is kind of like renovating a house while it's still on fire. So we try to, um, calm those things down and put out the fire and then address the underlying brain health issues. And um, yeah, have really good results. I metricize everything. I'm, I'm a big numbers guy. So uh, we are constantly running the data to improve processes and, and uh, improve our patient outcomes, client outcomes. So that's what we're doing here in our corner of Texas. Well, Wes, number one, thank you for your service, man. Over 20 years, you're a major, right? Yeah, I retired as a major back in 2002, um, combat veteran of uh, the first Gulf War and a couple of other little dust-ups that didn't manage to make the newspapers. So, yeah. Right. And, and the PTSD, is that what got you started with neurofeedback or how, to, how did you get into the biz? 
You know what? I was a graduate student when I retired. I knew I was going to go and get a counseling degree and then a PhD in psychology. And so now I have more degrees than a thermometer and using those things to address, you know, complex uh, issues like PTSD. I didn't get into neurofeedback, though, until I was working in uh, psych hospitals and discovered that um, the system was sicker than the patients that were in it. And I shared that observation with both the professors in the, in the program that I was in and also with the medical director of the freestanding high, um, psych hospital I was working at. And both of them independently told me I should read uh, Dr. Daniel Amen's work. And so I read Daniel Amen's first edition of Change Your Brain, Change Your Life. And there was a sentence in it that was like a hook in the mouth of a large mouth bass. He said, why are psychiatrists the only physicians in all of medicine that don't image the organ that they work with? And from that point on, uh, I was in a relentless pursuit of neurofeedback. That was actually the first modality that he had used. And since then, Daniel and I have have gotten to be close friends. And um, he has continued to prod me in how I'm using uh, the tools that I have at my disposal uh, to reach folks who the system has failed. So, and I'm talking about the medical model of um, mental health. Um, and I don't even use the word mental health anymore. We, we call it either behavioral health or brain health. Um, Cause I think there's just too many stigmas associated with that. And when you're working with guys who have combat related PTSD, they know for them, it's not a mental issue. It's a physical issue. They feel it every day. That's how I got, that's how I got in. And that's why I'm still in. And there's qu- quite a few uh, people that are in it as well, right? Uh, you know, D- D- Dr. Laura, Dr. Skip, myself, Jay, a lot, lot of businesses out there and uh, they buy the equipment, they put their shingle out and then they start and then it gets rough and then they, they, ba- they back out. How, how can we help some of those people who are trying to get into uh, neurofeedback, Dr. West? Yeah, that's a great that's a great observation. And so, half my business, probably more than more than half my business, is actually consulting with practices to help them how to be successful. Most people don't fail because of they lack technical knowledge and know how. Most people fail in their businesses because they don't know anything about the business of of, of running a business. Most of us, when we go to grad school, don't go to grad school to learn how to run a business. We learn how to do the technical aspects of our job. So the, the number one failing that people make is the one going in where they, they build a business without the, uh, um, the expressed intention at some point of selling it. And if, if you don't start a business with the intention of selling it, you're, you're almost always going to end up in a disastrous position. And um, Michael Gerber ought to be required reading for everybody who wants to pursue um, a small a small business. And so his book Beyond E-Myth is probably one of the better ones of the dozen or so that he's written. What we found out in, in our consulting with practices all over the world, we have them in Suzhou, China, Taipei, Taiwan, uh, Romania, uh, the Netherlands, all over North America. We found out that there's a there's a set of, of common, you know, vision kind of mistakes that people make. First of all, they don't have one. You know, why am I here? Why am I doing what I'm doing? There's no specific target market. They just say, well, we're just going to treat the brain and whatever it brings us. And while that's that's a great aphorism in, in practice, it doesn't really work well. 
They don't have any vision or, or purpose or value statements, no business plan, or at least one that's not realistic. They have really poor income to debt ratio. They're not very well capitalized. They tend to chase technology. As long as a new something comes out, they're, they're on to it. There's a lot of field of dreams kind of marketing. If, if we just build it, people will come. Um, they overpromise and underdeliver, and that kills you with the public. It also kills your, your competition because when people have a bad experience with neurofeedback and the public doesn't know the difference between author, author method, uh, uh, you know, Zengar, neurooptimal, uh, four channel uh, neurofeedback, amplitude training, Z-score, they don't know that. And so when a neurofeedback provider fails, it taints all of the neurofeedback providers. And so making sure that we talk about what we can deliver in terms of a good clinical outcome is extremely important, not just for our own practices, but for those other people in the field around us. This one I've encountered personally, bad hires. So hiring people that, you know, I had an inkling in my spirit that this was not going to be a good fit. And lo and behold, two years later, you know, they've cost me business, run other staff off and, um, and then I have to let them go. And, uh, and then it takes usually twice as long to recover from those bad hires. And then hiring people to work for you that are external to your practice, like bookkeepers, marketing people. There's a million other reasons why people fail, but these tend to be the big ones. Um, people overpay for stuff, um, you know, just because they don't know any better. They don't do good market research. Um, they have uh, business hours and, and days of the week that they work that fit their lifestyle and schedule, but may not necessarily be good for the clients that they serve. There's a lot of operational mediocrity and people don't like to hear that because they think that it's a character assassination. You know, you're going after their character when you say, hey, you get, you're running a mediocre practice. And it's just, it's just a function of violation of very basic principles. So no business documents like the aforementioned business plan. Uh, they don't do their government filings, either with their state, the IRS, uh, don't have job descriptions for the people that work for them. They don't have a job description for themselves. That's a, that's a classic mistake that practice owners make is not having a job description for themselves that they discipline themselves to follow. No org charts that people know who they report to and no standard business practices. In the military, we call them SOPs or staying operating procedures. Those things are absolutely critical. So if you're going to do a manualized therapy where you're fitting the client to a specific protocol pattern or a specific, you know, assess, address, reassess process, that thing needs to be written down so that everybody follows it so that you can have these, you know, proven processes that produce predictable results. And unless you write those things down, that's not happening. And then having low expectations of yourself or your employees so um, if you don't expect to be 110%, you shouldn't expect that out of anybody else. And I see a lot of practice owners who expect punctuality out of their employees and they're routinely 20, 30 minutes late to work themselves. Or they expect people to be polite when they're talking to clients on the phone and that their readers all get out when they get on the phone or impatient. And so uh, elevating expectations to, can do a lot to improve the, the clinical outcome and the happy workforce in your own office. And then not having any accountability in the organization. 
that one of the biggest mistakes I made early on was not doing regular performance reviews with my clinician and administrative staff. And as soon as I started employing regular periods of accountability, their, their job satisfaction as well as their performance increased. So making sure that you're doing that doesn't make you a bad boss, makes you a good boss. Um, there's a, a, a proverb um, in the scriptures that reads, when there is no vision, people perish. You know, people languish in organizations where there's not a vision casted by the leader that says, this is why we're here, and this is what we're going to do, and this is how we're going to do it. And so one of the one of the things that has always stood out to me is this statement that's not a tribute to anybody in particular, but don't let your business be the place where your dreams go to die. Make sure that your business is a place where your dreams can flourish. So you got to have to, you have to have some sort of memorialization of your big why. Why are you here and why are you doing what you're doing? And would you be happier doing something else? I think we've all encountered folks who, when we talk to them, about their business, you just get this nagging sense that they'd be happier doing something else. You know, there are a certain number of people who are not, you know, happy unless they're griping. Like most of the Marines I've worked with, unless they're griping, they're not happy. But um, you don't want that from somebody who's working with the most sophisticated organ in the universe, the human brain. You know, you want somebody who's got a, a passion. One of the things I love about Jay is he's passionate about the brain and the mysteries that are hidden in the EEG. And every time I've encountered Jay, either in an interpersonal hanging out around the dinner table or, or in a class where he's teaching, um, he uh, is always seems like a kid in a candy store about the privilege that he has to work the human brain and the uniquenesses in everybody's EEG. That's like this nugget that's hidden. If you just dig it up far enough, you can find the treasure. You have to have that in this field or you're, you're going to burn out in the New York minute. Um, so what's your vision? What are your values? How do you see people? Um, how do you see yourself as a people helper? What's your purpose? And, and then again, what's your mission? Our mission statement here at Brain Behavior Associates has been changing lives one brain at a time. And that's been our mission statement for 15 years. And we put it on everything that we do when we have our meetings together, when we do our annual reviews, when we review our mission, vision, and value statements. We start with that. Is, is this still our primary mission to change lives one brain at a time? And so we encourage people to do that. Going back to this, you know, organizational documents, if you don't have a written, established, and followed by everybody in the organization, including yourself, a plan or a process of how we get people from um, their first phone call contact with us to that last meeting where we celebrate their big win and in the work that they did with us, you don't have a business, you have a hobby. So if you don't have repeatable process that produce predictable results, you don't have a business. And this is the one thing that I think is the most startling to the folks that we, that we, um, do a business consulting relationship is when we, you know, point these things out and they, they finally recognize that they've got a hobby. It's not a business. And then they realize that they're going to have to do more work on their business than in their business in order for it to produce predictable results. So there's a fatal assumption that most all of us make when we start a business and that if we understand the technical work, 
then we understand the business that does technical work. And so most of the neurofeedback folks that I run into, sweet people, really good at delivering neurofeedback are horrible business people, horrible business people. And it's because they're technicians or managers, but they're not entrepreneurs. If you started a business, you're an entrepreneur, and I don't care what the business is. And if you ever lose your entrepreneurial spirit, your business will die because the technician and the manager will kill it. So those are essentially the, the, the three roles that we fill as neurofeedback owners. We're number one, on, entrepreneurs. Number two, we're managers. And number three, we're technicians. So the technician is the person that knows the technical aspects of the business, know the ups and downs of the EEG. We, we know, you know how to do you know, instrumental learning through, you know, basic learning theory and practices. We understand our electronics and instrumentation. We have some basic rudimentary understanding of the brain, although our understanding of the brain is changing every day. Um, so that's the technical stuff, but that really doesn't determine, you know, how your, how your practice succeeds. Your practice succeeds when you can define the results and then produce those results and if you don't have a de definition of results, particularly one that you can communicate to your, to your clients, hey, we're going to come in and we're going to do an assessment. These are the phases of the assessment that we're going to do. We're going to integrate that data into a overall training plan. We're going to deliver that plan to you. We're going to reassess all along the process. And at the end of that, you're going to have these very specific clinical outcomes that you told me when we sat down at the very beginning and said you wanted to achieve more focus, less irritability, better sleep quality and duration, those very specific aspects of why you came to me. So if you can't define, define those results, you know, I don't want to just sleep better. I want to sleep seven, to eight hours every night. I want to wake feeling rested and I want to uh, be energized for my day when I, you know, when I get out of the bed. That's a, that's a definition of the results I want to achieve. Until you can define them, you can't produce them. Otherwise, you won't, you know, when they say, what, uh, if you don't know where, you, where you're going, any road will get you there. You have to know where you're going. And so, again, that big why of why are you doing what you're doing? Who are you doing it for? And why are you doing this and not something else are critical in producing, again, proven processes that produce predictable results. So question, Skip. Yeah, I did, Wes. And it, a comment first, uh, I, I too had a different career before I got into psychology and it was in business. It was in finance, actually. So a little bit of background on business and then awesome. you know, family history of you know a bunch of home kind of businesses. So I always kind of grew up around those ideas. And I guess my comment and it's not to be discouraging, discouraging to anybody. It's, it's more about promoting the ideas you're talking about is the folks that I met and went to grad school with, like run away from all the things that you've been talking about. Like that's not the stuff they want to do. And, and this is, you know, mid 90. So we're talking, you know, 20 plus years, 25 years ago. Um, so things could change for sure. But I know for a fact that they weren't doing any, any kind of practice, um, business practice teachings or even commenting on it at the time 
um, managed healthcare was just coming on the scene in California, which is where I was. So that was kind of changing the landscape of, you know, private practice and billing insurance or even private pay. Um, but anyway, it, it, there was no teaching of it. And so it always struck me as, hey, is this a chicken or the egg thing? Are they, are we terrible uh, business managers because, you know, we didn't get taught these things or, and I mean, in private practice uh, and, and I'm generalizing like crazy, obviously. Um, or is it that folks that are drawn to that kind of work, which is maybe a little less, I just say structured for the fact of, you know, doing psychotherapy is not always so structured. Um, it, or, or is that it, you know, which one is it? And, and it, again, it's just a comment, but where I'm getting to is my experience and maybe even encouragement with neurofeedback. So now I'm getting into kind of neuroscience, neuropsychology, neurofeedback, things became less ambiguous to some extent and, and maybe a little more structured in the application and the approach to the work more along the lines of what you're talking about, right. As a kind of business model, or at least, Hey, let's think about a business model before we go out and buy a $15,000, 19 channel amplifier, you know, like those kinds of things. So here's the question. I just got something from ISNR and they had their board meeting and they're trying to organize themselves at least at the top, if not the top, in the role as a, a, a neuroregulation body, right? So as you're talking about, hey, let's have this business practice in mind. We've talked on the show before about the fact it's not a very regulated field for the most part. And, you know, that leads to folks being able to open practices as they want and things like that, which is, you know, good and bad. So anyway, here's the question. And, and it's more just to have any comments moving forward towards a maybe regulatory body, which again, good and bad, I think. How, how do you think that plays out in maybe the prevalence of neurofeedback as an intervention, the acceptance of it, um, what, what you're speaking about specifically, maybe the successful development of practices within neurofeedback? Yeah. So let, let me, I don't have any prescience about, about any of this. I, it, I was a grad school professor for you know, some period of time. So number one, business is not part of the formal curriculum of anything in behavioral, behavioral health. There's no field of behavioral health for which business is part of the formal curriculum. That's the first thing. The second thing is, is that the different, the, the thing that successful people and unsuccessful people have in common is they all have things they don't want to do. The difference between the successful people and the unsuccessful people is the successful folks do them anyway. So it, there's things we don't like to do. I, I don't like to deal with the IRS, not tremendously fond of, um, you know, my regular meetings with my banker or my bookkeeper, things like that. But in order for me to deliver the care that, you know, again, that provides the maximum result for my patients, I have to have some operational efficiencies that allow me to do that. Uh, no, I wasn't trained as a business person, but I grew up in a family that going back multiple generations here in Texas have started businesses, everything from ranches to the first appliance dealership in Dallas. So, I mean, we, we have a, I have a family background in entrepreneurs. My youngest child just graduated her MBA. So she's into the business world too. I just think that we have to sometimes pinch our nose and do stuff anyway. And so if you don't like you know, if you don't like keeping your own books, well, then hire a bookkeeper, but 
make sure that you stay in contact with them and, and don't lose sight of it. There's a lot of people who are doing neurofeedback marketing today. One of the things I find most kind of disconcerting is the number of Facebook pages where people say they know how to do neurofeedback marketing and, you know, give me money and I'll do it. And um, I would tell you to either investigate them really, really well and look for their results before you hire them or just run like a scalded dog from them just from the outset. Um, because unless you run a neurofeedback business, you don't know how to run a neurofeedback business. And most of us, when we started one, didn't know how to do it either. We figured it out as we were going along. And I wouldn't discourage anybody from starting a neurofeedback business, even if they don't know what the heck they're doing, because that's what I did. And here, 15 years, 15 years later, we're, we're still here. We're still, you know, have several hundreds of thousands of dollars in revenue a year. So it's possible to do it and be successful at it. And I know plenty of others who are doing the same. I'm saying it's a whole lot easier to do it. And, and you don't have to worry about what the bottom line is if you'll just do some very simple business practices. And again, just buy Michael Gerber's book, one book, read through it, and then find one thing that you can do that you will do today to make your business better and then do that. And then tomorrow, you know, or next week, add another one and then add another one. And eventually you'll build something worth selling. Um, but again, all of us should have as a goal of building a business, the end is to sell it at some point. Because I mean, most of us want to either retire or a few of us want to die in place, but you know, uh, we want to be able to pass something on and, and the best way to do it is to sell it. Um, and, and to have something worth selling, you, you know, you got to do a little business stuff. Now, as far as where the field is going in terms of, there isn't a homogenous neurofeedback field. Um, either in the U.S. or the state of Texas or the, the DFW Metroplex, and there certainly isn't one internationally. So it, it is not a, a homogeneous field by any stretch of the imagination. And there's various licensed groups that are trying to claim ownership. Um, uh, the state of uh, Nevada one time, the psychologist tried to make an exclusive play for neurofeedback, saying that anybody else that was doing neurofeedback was practicing outside of their scope. And um, physicians group have tried to do the same. And unless we have an ad a strong advocacy group at ISNR to say that either we're going to create a, a licensure track uh, and a separate um, you know, um, standards of practice and separate scope of practice for neurofeedback practitioners that 50 states are going to agree to, which tells you right there, that's not going to happen. I don't know that there's any way to preserve neurofeedback as a, you know, a single entity under one license. Um, now, maybe in a hundred years from now, that'll happen. And neuromodulation will, you know, be its own field the formal curriculum of the colleges and universities will pr produce people with those skills, but that is, that is not going to happen in the next 20, 25 years. It isn't going to happen because the nature of institutions of higher learning is to move at the pace of snails. And so in order to, you know, to create a program by which people can become, you know, neuromodulation experts or neurofeedback, it's not happening. So, um, 
until then, I think that those of us who possess licenses or multiple licenses uh, need to work with ISNR and BCIA to um, make sure that we tighten our standards and advocate that people that have the BCIA certification um, are the ones that we recognize as being, you know, the practitioners. And because uh, we've got people that attend a vendor workshop on a weekend and hang out a single and say they're a neurofeedback provider. And we have things that are clearly not neurofeedback being marketed as neurofeedback. So I think, um, and I don't want to use any names of products or things, but there's, there's a form of neuromodulation that uh, doesn't even use EEG that's calling itself neurofeedback. And so, and again, the public doesn't know that, that, you know, and we need to help educate the public. And, and, and the way we do that is developing standards by which we can all agree. And anybody who's been a member of ISNR for longer than six months knows that we don't agree on much of anything. And that needs to change. In a field that isn't regulated, how do you differentiate, right? Because anybody can put a shingle up. So what makes your, your service better than somebody else? I mean, years of experience, I guess, the BCIA. No, I a- mean... Yeah, people people have people who have twenty years of experience may have one year of experience repeated twenty times. That's not experience, you know. That's a rut. And and again, one of the reasons why I appreciate Jay and Tom Kluwer and Bob Thatcher and others is because they're constantly challenging what we think we know by asking hard questions and. Uh, just because somebody has been in clinical practice for 20 years doesn't mean they have 20 years of experience. They may have one year experience repeated 20 times, but they haven't learned anything, you know, for the last 19 years. And, and that's a problem. And that is, that is endemic in our field. And all you have to do is have a five minute conversation. You know exactly who those people are. And, and so we need to find a way to encourage those people to, you know, be, everyday students of EEG and neurofeedback, QEG. But what, what objective way can, like a mom and dad's going to listen to this podcast and, and a new business uh, startup that just bought a Nexus is going to, all right, I'm going to get going in this. How do I differentiate my, my product, my service from the other neurofeedback providers out there? Well, that's, a great, any... that's a great question. So n- number one, I would not go to anybody who wasn't licensed. Um, and the reason is, is because as you say, the field's unregulated, but people who are licensed have to follow the scope of practice that, that their state has. Now um, there are, there used to be a scope of practice and scope of competent states. There aren't any still, I don't think there's any scope of competent states remaining in licensure boards. So I think they're all scope of practice. So number one, is that person licensed, is neurofeedback within their scope of practice? So in Texas, we've had some really strong advocates, Sarah Harper, Dr. Sarah Harper, Linda Kirk, who have made sure that our scope of practices for behavioral health include biofeedback by any modality and specifically neurofeedback. So so are they licensed? Is it in their scope of practice? Are they board certified in the neurofeedback or neuromodulatory, you know, practice that they're engaging in. And so if they don't have BCIA or one of the other certifying bodies um, logo on, you know, on their website that says, you know, I have supervised education and training and passed some sort of um, graduation event 
in order to attain a certification. And that's the minimum level of requirement that I'm, I'm not saying that that that's the, you should, that should be where you draw the cutting line and then you evaluate further the people above that. Unfortunately, in some States looking at, at reviews that people have on websites, Google and other thing is not helpful in Texas. We're not allowed to solicit former clients for, uh, for reviews. So it's only if they choose to do it. So in 15 years, I think I've got five reviews on Google. Um, but I've got thousands of clients and, you know, about 94%, according to our current numbers, would say that they had some significant reduction in the symptoms that brought them, if not remission. So, uh, but again, I can't make those statements because I'm specifically prohibited from that. And so phone interviews are generally the best way to figure out whether somebody knows what they're doing. Are they using special terms of art? Are they, are they able to translate into layman's language what it is that they're doing? Um, do they have some idea of their clinical outcomes? Uh, are they willing to communicate via, via phone or email, you know, to have those con conversations? So, you know, you just have to be a discriminating shopper of services. Isn't it fascinating with this particular service? There's an end game to it. So you have a business life cycle, right? You, you have startup, growth, plateau, dying. And if you're a one or two person practice, you're, you're, you're in growth mode till you plateau. But if it takes 20 sessions to remove the symptoms, that client is done and you don't have an income uh, stream anymore, right? So I, what advice do you give to practitioners now, I'm not saying to solicit a review, but how do you, do you have any advice how to keep that engine going to ask for referrals so you can keep the business? I mean, word of mouth, okay, it's great, but it's very subjective. Any advice uh, you can give to new people to, to keep a stream of uh, clients coming in? Yeah, so in, 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 again, 15 years of business, um, I've done just about every marketing thing you can imagine, Google AdWords, Facebook ads. I've done um, hard print ads. I've um, all kinds of things. I spent $36,000 one year with a marketing company and got a single referral who didn't convert. So um, you can spend a whole lot of money and not have anything to show for it. So now we don't do any advertising. We do have a website, but we don't do any ad advertising whatsoever but I take every speaking engagement that I'm offered at schools, PTOs, you name it. Um, our number one referral source is uh, former clients. So still our number one resource. I have a three month waiting list, you know, and have for a long time. And I hate that because you lose a lot of those. If they go on a wait list for you, they're generally by the time, you know, two months rolls around, they've gone to somebody else. Cause you know, people come to us cause they're hurting and need help. Not because they want to, Hey, I think I can live with this another three months. I mean, usually they've reached a pain point that they're ready to do something about it. So the, the goal is to time somebody who's ending their time with you to somebody who's going to roll in and start. And so what we found out the best way to deal with a waiting list is, and, and to deal with a whole marketing problem is to, um, ramp people down off of neurofeedback gradually. So instead of going from two to three sessions a week to graduating, two to three sessions to two sessions and two sessions to one, and then one every other week, 
and then do more frequent QEG analyses to see if things are holding. And then to show them, look, there's been little difference between this queue and your last queue. How about we take a break for a month, come back and let's just do a queue only. We're not gonna, we're not gonna train you. And then look and see if there's better, worse or no different. And you're also gonna do a symptom thing, better, worse or no different. So while we're doing that and transitioning people out, we're also bringing people in by doing their initial assessments. And so, again, that's part of a written process that we have that maintains a throughput of our, of our client load um, and allows us to manage things like vacations and holidays better. So a couple of things I was thinking of. One is just kind of a, a reaction to um, what do you get for $36,000 in marketing? A lighter um, wallet. One well, like I said, I didn't get anything. I mean, I got. I mean, what, I got, what, do, you, what do you buy? Like, what did they tell you they were selling you? Like a magazine article, or I mean. Oh no, no! This was a hard print. This was electronic stuff. This, this was, you know, targeted Facebook ads. You know, pay per click. It was call rail. Um, um, you know, a, a number that they call. Anytime they called a number that was on the website, it actually went to call rail for uh, marketing. You know, capture. We did email capture. Um, had tons of people sign up for our private blogs. My blog, my blog isn't public. It's only for people who subscribe. Um, and uh, same thing for people who come to the website. We have a public side of the web, and then we have a you know a, a private side that you have to have a, a, a essentially a login for. And the same thing for access to YouTube and other things. So um, all of that stuff was integrated and. The tracking was wonderful. The metrics were wonderful and it didn't produce a single client. So, um, you know, they delivered technically, but they didn't deliver in the long run practically what they were offering. And again, this is my aversion to people who say, you know, you know, here's a current trend in, in, uh, you know, behavioral health, you know, kids with ADHD and not sleeping. Uh, call me and I'll help you grab these clients. Um, and my experience, you know, they're well-intended folks, but, you know, over-promise, under-deliver. So kind of part two, uh, unrelated probably, but um, so as I'm listening to you with a three-month waiting list, I have this kind of just general uh, question. Do you think the neurofeedback service can become scalable I know that there's a couple large practices in Amen, actually, maybe not one of them, but do you think that, um, you know, we, we can grow a practice where there are numerous technicians kind of churning out, so to speak? That's my model. The service? That, that's, yeah, that's what, we, that's what we do. I, I, and again, but you have to very, be very intentionally entrepreneurial when they do that, when you do that, because as a clinician, you're going to work yourself out of a job because you're going to run your business. Right. So, you know, like I said, until you hire a CFO, you know, you're the CFO until you hire a CEO or a COO. That's what you are. You're the C-suite person. And so, but most of us don't want to be that. We want to be the clinician, but if you want to scale your business, you've got to become you know, you've got to become that person. Well, let me tell you where I think the field really though is going. I don't think it's going to multi-practitioner clinics. I think it's going to home-based training. And so I, I think that where we're going, as soon as we can figure out how to have devices that will measure EEG uh, reliably and consistently that can be put on by the user, 
requiring minimal and not real-time intervention from a clinician, that's when you'll see the field take off. And that's because we can proliferate the technology without having to multiply ourselves physically. We can do it virtually. That's where the field is headed. The problem is right now the technology uh, doesn't support it. And, and I've looked at almost every system out there that purports to do reliable and consistent EEG, and it just doesn't. And 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 Jay's associated with one of them, so I'm not going to name it, but uh, it doesn't it doesn't deliver what it promises to deliver, except under very, very stringent um, environmental circumstances. So, but that's where we're going and it's, they're going to figure it out because they're highly motivated to. So, so that's why you have a waiting list is because you only have so many devices. Oh no, I, I, I have, um, I have five stations and uh, we can go 10 hours a day, five days a week. Uh, that it's not a limitation of the facilities. Uh, right now, my current limitation is qualified people. I could use another three clinicians right now or technicians. The problem is finding somebody that, you know, you not the average Joe can't do this. And, I, and I'm not saying you have to be, you don't have to be the sharpest tool in the shed, but you have got to have some good people skills, you have to have some knowledge of math and statistics. You have to have a little bit of understanding of neurophysiology, neurobiology. You have to have a little bit of understanding about uh, neuroanatomy and how the brain works just for a technician. And schools are not producing those people. Even in the neuropsychology programs, we have found it with PhDs in neuropsychology from UT Southwestern Medical School. We've had to spend three to six months training them to do neurofeedback and neuromodulation because we had to shatter some paradigms. First of all, you wouldn't believe the number of programs that don't really believe in neuroplasticity. They give intellectual assent to it. They don't give practical assent to it. So when you talk about doing neurofeedback to train a broken brain, they don't believe that that's actually possible. So it's the people's the number one limitation on in my practice and not, may not be for somebody else's. Um, that'll affect the scalability if you don't have enough exactly. connections to, to exactly. grow then you're not going to grow exactly no precisely right in regards to your practice you mentioned that you guys also address the, the, the whole kit and caboodle right so you're doing an assessment you're looking at functional medicine approaches and and what kind of grabbed my mind was neurotransmitter function but i guess can, can you tell me how does that fit in we're talking about you having technicians to be able to do the the training how does someone that comes to you for just picks on ADHD or, or, you know, a mood disorder, how do they get hooked up with someone in your office that said, all right, well, let's, let's see what your gut health looks like. Let's do some panels here. Yeah. So um, re remember, I, I'm a big believer in processes and, and the military taught me the value of processes This kept, kept me and my Marines alive more than once. So repeatable processes produce predictable results. So, uh, we treat, we treat the brain, not the bumper stickers from the medical community. So just because somebody says they have ADHD doesn't mean they have ADHD or autism or anything else. So we just take that. We look at symptoms. What are the discrete symptoms that somebody shows up with? We do a two-hour face-to-face assessment where we um, go through everything from history, gut health, developmental history, symptom expression, first time they've had it, 
I asked the head injury question five times. Daniel Amon taught me that you absolutely have got to ask a minimum of five times about head injuries. The research says with mild traumatic brain injury, um, it most people do not remember them. It's not until they become moderate to severe that people remember that they actually had a head injury because they become dismissive of it. So it becomes extremely important to assess for head in, assess for head injuries. Next visit, they do. Um, a neuropsychological battery computer administered. We don't administer those at home, particularly with children, because parents tend to intervene in such a way that it skews the results. So we do those in office. Uh, we do paper and pencil instruments that we send to them. Uh, we do um, neurotransmitter stress hormone tests, functional genetics. Uh, the uh, omega-3, omega-6, and palmitic acid assays are all take-home tests that are done at home. So once we get all that information and the QEG, we integrate it and then bring everybody, family, loved ones, you know, paying members of the fan club to come sit down and go over everything that we find and then show them the interrelationship of it, particularly those related to diet, sleep and exercise. And then from there, we say, this is your plan. There are other people who do this, the PMP Center, the PV Lawless Center up in um, up in uh, the Frisco area where uh, Barbara Peavy and Frank Lawless are, they do the same thing. Amen Clinics does the same thing. We're not the only ones doing this. We haven't reinvented the wheel, but that's how we do it. And um, Amen Clinics, by the way, doesn't have multi-clinicians in their, neurofeedback clinicians in their clinics. I think Jay Gaddis is in the one in, in uh, Costa Mesa, I can't remember the name of person in Atlanta, and he doesn't have neurofeedback in all of his clinics now. Uh, but um, so they don't have a multi-practitioner focus either. But again, going back to your specific question, Skip, we do those assessment pieces, and then our process is called a copyrighted process: assess, address, reassess, and it's it's a continual process. All the pieces are known to my staff. Uh, all of them have specific time frames assigned to them and everybody knows on the team what data we get from what how we integrate it how we present it to the client what we do to intervene so again it's it's heavily process oriented but as a consequence we can predict the results it's going to do and we can tell the clients if you do what we ask you to do this is the level of results you're going to get if you do this but you decide you don't want to do that this is the level of, uh, of results you can expect and so, you know, it's predictable. If you're not going to quit your playing video games at, from midnight to three in the morning, it's going to affect your sleep, which is going to affect your training, which is going to affect your learning. And this is the result you're going to get. Do, what's your buy-in on that? Can you give me just a general, like, yeah, almost everybody half. Did... So we find that most people's pain point beyond the reason that they came in is financial. And so we tell them, we're not going to refund a dime for you if you don't do the things we ask you to do. So if, if you're not going to quit your video games or if you're not going to reduce and over time eliminate your substance abuse with our help, um, then, you know, don't come and ask for money back from me. That's not happening. Jay, the home market for neurofeedback, uh, you got any thoughts on any dry sensor companies you may know, might know out there? Well, they're becoming more and more common. Um, I've, I've looked at a few and have actually um, made uh, uh, as an advisor to a couple of groups now. Um, uh, uh, Sense AI is one. They're not oriented towards clinicians. They're oriented towards the end user. 
uh, and then there's Divergence uh, Neuro in Canada. Uh, they're, they're not a device manufacturer. They're uh, oriented towards the clinician and uh, the, uh, trying to provide a home uh, device. Uh, they use a, the Crown uh, amplifier system with dry sensors for their uh, uh, interface, but they're open to other uh, devices. They tried to have Sense AI uh, work with them, but Sense AI is still in their startup. They're not really open to any other uh, arrangements. They're still trying to bootstrap themselves. I have to say that that the, the field is uh, uh, full of people that aren't necessarily uh, 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 clinician oriented. There There are uh, uh, coach-oriented sports people. Uh, there are consciousness-oriented meditative uh, optimizers. Um, so there, the 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 one thing I I think that the uh, organizations need to watch out for is becoming the brain police. Um, you know, you're you don't want to as a membership organization. You need to educate. Um, and have members and grow the field with your membership. Um, it, it should be a good spot for people to come to get resources uh, and to be, be educated. But if you're uh, if you're the brain police, uh, it's not a friendly environment. Uh, you know, um, I I would suggest that if you're trying to be the brain police, you're basically competing with all the licensing boards in all the states. They're already there. They're already doing you know the the uh, license reviews and uh, even sports people end up having uh, reviews of of their performance so yeah. we, we i think as a membership organization the closer you get to becoming a regulatory body the the less uh friendly the environment is and you know i snr grew from a very small meeting uh, the first meeting i ran for them was 75 people paying in aspen you, you can't have a society with only 75 paying people showing up. Um, and there were over 500. Uh, I, I did eight organizational meeting uh, runs for them over a decade. And uh, they went from 75 to 500 people, mostly because we planned a very good time uh, and very good education. Mm-hmm. You, know, it, you, you have to have fun and you have to have high level educational opportunity and at that point, it grew and grew and grew. And uh, I think about the time you start to become a regulatory body, uh, you're going to shed uh, entire groups out of your organization. If you're trying to yeah. regulate the psychologists, you're going to lose the coaching and meditative folks. Uh, and you're not going to be able to advocate either. And I think that's the yeah. problem we've got now. Advocacy is what suffered. Yeah. So well, we should well, be advocating for neurofeedback, not for practitioners, you know. Yeah. Our, our, our field has a huge future. And if you're just in the United States with your feet on the ground, looking at what's happening immediately around you, don't really see the international growth that's happening. Uh, you know, Europe is uh, burgeoning. Uh, um, uh, Australia is, is really uh, quadrupled their uh, uh, practitioner level there. Um, uh, South America, Central America, Asia. The, the 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 entire world is growing, and if you're just looking at your feet, you don't see it. So, yeah. and you know, you you kind of have to travel around the world and meet uh, uh, people internationally to actually see uh, the the level of growth. But it, it's 
the as I say, the future's so bright I have to cover it when I know, you know. So Plus, we're getting towards the end of the show here, and uh, this is kind of a bad last question, but you did start out uh, the presentation saying you need to have an exit plan. Yeah. And my que- and I, I don't know if you can answer this with five minutes left, but uh, you know who's who's buying out there and what multiple of revenues? What's what's the numbers? If somebody's going to put a business plan and they're going to say I'm going to exit at this particular point. Who's buying and what What do the numbers look like, just in general, if you can say? Yeah, well, some of this is kind of proprietary to our business because we're one of the few that are out there surveying the markets and looking at these things. So okay. I'm going to share with you stuff that people could find out if they looked hard enough on their own. Um, so first, if you're going to sell your business and you plan on selling it within five years, Um, and you don't have a plan, then you need to plan on selling it in six to seven years so that you can get your five-year plan in place because it takes about that long to transition. Um, You need to remove all the emotions from selling your business. And the first one you need to remove is that your business is worth what you think it's worth. It's not. Your business is worth exactly and only what somebody's willing to pay you to take it off your hands. That's what it's worth. And a lot of folks have a hard time swallowing that. Oh, I've been doing this for 20 years. You know, the biggest mistake any clinician ever made was naming their practice after themselves. I, I told Marvin Sands that as I was patting him on the back and handing him some Kleenex. You know, you, you, if you're going to name the place the Sam Center, you need to realize that when you retire, it dies with you. Um, and, and the same goes you know, for anybody else that wants to name a practice after themselves. That just tells everybody you didn't build it to sell it. You build it to, you know, pay your bills and fund your kids' education, but you didn't build something to sell. And so what people are willing to pay to take it off your hands has to do with your book of accounts and what that's worth, what your current throughput is, what your last three years of uh, gross and net income was, um, and they look really hard at how much you paid yourself as opposed to what you invested in, in the business. So um, look, I guess, take a hard, hard look at those numbers. If you think, uh, you know, I've done this for 20 years, the immediate thing I think of is, well, how old is your equipment? You know, uh, uh, you, know uh, uh, you can run into a practice that thinks they're uh, operating at a high level but their equipment is archaic and needs need to all be replaced. Yeah. Um, and uh, and software is even worse because it's yeah. more expensive. So, you know, you're talking about databases and you're talking about, you know, software that drives everything from feedback. Um, and you need to look and see if your license are transferable. A lot of people buy licenses and software that the licensing agreement that they bought said that it's non-transferable. Then they try to go sell their practice and they, they find out, that the software is worthless because it's non-transferable. So yeah, a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth over, you know, again, not understanding your own business. Uh, Are there any angel investors out there, private equity, any buys out there that you've seen, any you want to point to that people can look up? Yes. Be very careful of vulture capitalists. They will pick the meat off your bones And uh, their goal is to own your practice so that they can sell it. So 
don't think that somebody investing in there has your best interest at heart. They have their best interest at heart. That's why they're in business. So once you accept somebody else's money, it's their business. um, And um, you'll find yourself pushed out of it. I don't know how many people have brought in investors and found themselves on the street in one to two years um, and wondering what happened to their company. It's no longer theirs. It's somebody else's. So, you know, caveat emptor, right? You know. Wes, what's the best way for our listeners to learn more about you? BrainBehaviorAssociates.com? Yeah, BrainBehaviorAssociates.com is the best way to get a hold of us. And it's Brain and Behavior Associates. Yes, and spelled out. Yeah, you can't use an ampersand in a URL. Right, right, right. Brain and Behavior Associates spelled out. Yeah, really long. Well, we'll we'll put the links in the podcast notes. I just just want to make sure we had everything uh, uh, together for you. Dr. Center, thank you again for joining us today. Well, thanks for the invite. I really enjoyed it. And I've enjoyed listening to you guys in your podcast before. And I hope hope your viewership didn't dip because of today's little adventure. Well, if it did, you can always be a sponsor on Patreon because we love our Patreon supporters. (laughs) Don't don't we? Don't we, Jay? (laughs) Absolutely. It's a great great value, uh, a very low cost and good coverage. So... (laughs) We thank you all for listening to NeuroNoodles, Neurofeedback, and Neuropsychology Podcasts. Again, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporters, Outrageous Baking, Tor Talk, Interested Brain Hacker, and Sadia M. Visit OutrageousBaking.com, gluten-free everyone loves, and it's Thanksgiving coming up. TorTalk.se to discover how listening to text can increase efficiency and reduce stress. Hey, you got an idea for a topic? Please email Pete at NeuroNoodle.com or leave us a voicemail with the link in the podcast notes. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, subscribe to our YouTube channel, smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter. And again, hey, if you really, really, really like us, you can always buy us a coffee on Patreon slash NeuroNoodle. We love our Patreon peeps. Everybody have a great Thanksgiving. Cue the music. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Dr. Wes. Thank you for your service. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Wes.